Grace to, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Before I start, uh, I just want to uh, congratulate all the men that were on the uh, retreat last weekend. When you saw the title of the sermon this morning, I thought that the back doors would be a little crushed with the, with the exodus. But last week was the Greenfield Men's Retreat uh, held at the Howell Nature Center. Time spent in four-star accommodations with actual indoor plumbing in every room. Touch of cold Michigan winter weather. And the customary snowfall at the end, which always makes the journey home a little more exciting. So the weekend again delivered a time for worship and fellowship and memorable celebrities. It was our 10th anniversary retreat which, as you all know, is celebrated with gifts of tin and aluminum. (laughs) If any of you out there are celebrating your 10th marriage anniversary, I warn you that there's a shortage of good aluminum foil due in large part to all the leftovers from the, the men's retreat. But once again, the men of Greenfield came away from the weekend with stronger personal bonds and a spirit of surrender and renewed commitment to Christ from the inspired teachings by our own Terry Barish. A great time, filled with old and new friendships, highlighted by a wonderful spirit of fellowship. Now we sometimes, sometimes, we sometimes joke about the Vegas parody of what happens in Howell stays in Howell. But I can't, in all seriousness, say that it's totally true. I've seen the pictures. (laughs) The retreat from the very first one brings back to Greenfield the aura of a renewed spirit, a purpose that confirms simply a life dedicated not to a creed of me, but to a creed of we. And I say bring back. Because Greenfield sends us to that retreat with an ingrained spirit of Christ-like service, the we thing. So let's talk about that we thing a little bit this morning. It's a given from many sources that we cannot grow spiritually all by ourselves. We've all heard people say, I don't need to go to church to worship God. I can do it myself. Usually that occurs with heads bowed and eyes closed underneath the covers on a Sunday morning. Or as Peter mentioned a couple of weeks ago, sitting at home in your jammies talking to God. And while there's truth to saying, I can see and feel God's presence uh, in a walk in the mountains or watching an indescribable sunset, there's a special delight and a stirring of the soul of sharing these moments with another person in community. There's an old saying in AA that we can get drunk on our own, but we get sober together. I can sin on my own, but I get healed by God in community. There is love in community. I get into a community of people that I can love, and practices that I've been doing on my own, I begin to do with others. And we enter into what might be called the shared life. Now in child development, there's a stage where little kids engage in what's called parallel play. 
This often happens when they're two to three years old. Put them in a, into a room with another two-year-old, and their bodies are right next to each other, but they can't really interact or cooperate. They're interested in what the other is doing, but they're not really not playing together. They're playing separately in the same space. Parallel play is considered a natural step in child development. In parallel play, you don't have to share your toys. In parallel play, you're free to do whatever you want. Now, how long this stage lasts depends somewhat on geography and culture. In Midwestern towns with high emphasis on community, it lasts until the kids are five or six. In other areas, it can go on longer. In Livonia, it can probably last until oh, retirement. <laughs> but the truth is we're made for each other. We need each other. We cannot grow or heal or become holy without it. And spirituality is not a parallel deal. It's not just something between me and God. And that is characterized by the word fellowship. Now, you rarely hear that word outside of church. It's almost become a cliche. It sometimes conjures up the idea of having churchy small talk with churchy snacks in a church basement, which sounds a lot like my old Lutheran church upbringing. But in the early church, it was the opposite. In the early church, they had such a profound experience of honest sharing life together and they used a single word to describe it, a Greek word called koinonia. And I've been practicing all week to say koinonia. <laughs> because they needed a way to describe their radical kind of sharing and participation and generosity, which meant when you became a part of this family, unlike any other human community, you were never alone. When someone goes through a heartbreak or loss, and people, without being asked, provide them with food and caring gifts and meals and visits. That's koinonia. That's the church. Or in times of a personal need, when somebody's without a job or a home or struck by a crisis without financial resources, another person or a brother or sister in Christ will step up and say, I can help. And resources get shared and generosity flows without even being requested. That's koinonia. Fellowship is the practice of engaging in common activities like worship, learning from the Bible, praying, sharing, confessing, serving with other people, with other disciples of Jesus for the purpose of our mutual growth of the community and for the blessings of other people outside of the community. It's also sitting on semi-comfortable chairs on a winter weekend in Howell to, as Terry Barish writes, provide an opportunity to commune with God and have God's presence restored in our lives together. That's what fellowship is. It doesn't so much mean to do new things. It's what I'm already doing now with others. In fellowship, I ask God for help to move from isolation to community. I commit myself to a group of people, and they become like my new family, sharing concerns, pain, 
celebrating joys in our lives, and I make them a priority. I commit to them, to worship, worshiping with them together regularly. I'll even allow them to tell me the truth about myself. Because we're really like little pieces of charcoal. We can sustain the fire of God when we're in contact together. But when we get isolated, fire kind of goes out. For some reason, it's like we can hold more of God when we're together than when we can when we get isolated or separated and scattered. We've all been here. We miss a week of church or two, and it seems like we've been gone for months. What's been happening? Who broke what? <laughs> Peter gave his best sermon ever. We feel a little isolated. Now, Jim Stovall, an American writer, tells a story of draft horses. A single draft horse can pull a load of 800 pounds. Think John Youngerman, Alan Gebauer, and Barney Borges together. Is that the draft one? Are they pulling? If you take two draft horses, intuition tells me that they can pull 1,600 pounds or double the load. The reality is, however, two draft horses can pull 2,400 pounds, three times the weight that a single draft horse can pull. And if they train together, get used to spending time together, they can pull 3,200 pounds, four times what a single draft horse can pull. There's strength in fellowship. Now, the most powerful description of fellowship of this Jesus way of life is found in the book of Acts in the second chapter that Deb read this morning. It's a famous chapter about the church, often called the Acts 2 church. This became a new way of life for human beings to live together. Anybody could do it. It was moderately costly. It was compelling. It was joy-producing. And it changed the world. Here's what it says. It's kind of defining the defining text of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Never quite been anything like that church, like this fellowship. So I'll start with an observation that comes towards the end of the passage where it says they ate together. Now eating together has been an important part of fellowship from the very beginning. Even last weekend at the retreat, we hardly stopped eating. And we're not talking twigs and nuts here. But just because you eat with someone, even a Christian doesn't make it fellowship. The text says they ate with glad and generous hearts. Now, generous hearts is an interesting phrase. Fellowship does require authenticity. People were so gripped by the good news that Jesus gives grace and forgiveness that when they came together, they ate and they took off their masks. They came out of hiding. They got real about their struggles and their temptations. Here's the truth about me. 
They ate with sincere hearts. Fellowship revealed who they were on the outside, and it was the same as what they were on the inside. Ironically, churches very often, because we aspire to be like Jesus, often engage in fake fellowship where people smile and are polite, superficial, and pretend everything is fine. Everybody likes everybody. Nobody acts out, and everyone's children are perfect. Sounds just like Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon. But that's not fellowship. Fellowship does not mean pretending that you're spiritual, more spiritual than you really are. Fellowship does not mean shifting into small talk, but sometimes here in church we fool ourselves into what we're supposed to do. Don't get too real. Our old friend John Ortberg writes, a mom is being visited visited by her pastor when her son comes running into the room all excited and holding a rat by a tail, a dead rat. And he tells his mom, I was playing behind the garage and I saw this rat running around and I threw a stone and I hit it. And I threw another one and I ran over and I kicked it and I picked it up and I threw it up against the garage wall and then I picked it up and threw it again against the garage wall as hard as I could. And about that time he saw the pastor and he realized that the look on his mother's face, if it could kill, he was going to be a dead man. (laughs) So he held the rat up by the tail and said in a very pious voice, and then the dear Lord brought him home. (laughs) Well, fellowship is not that. Fellowship is not boring. It's not surface talk. Trying to look good, trying to fool the pastor. Fellowship is more like men sitting around in jeans and t-shirts and slippers with day-old beards, sharing old and new stories of struggles and joys and revealing a personal love of God in the church confirming their need for authentic and committed fellowship and community. It's hard work, and we're not always 100% successful. And one of the most striking features of the disciples' fellowship is how much they messed up. Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. Thomas doubted Jesus. James and John self-promoted to Jesus. And Paul persecuted Jesus' followers. And Jesus was famous for engaging in table fellowship with sinners. And I think part of that is because they were willing to be real. The message is really clear. No pretending. On a human level, we often think getting real is dangerous and pretending is safe. But with God, or with an addiction or with sin, in the spiritual realm, getting real is what is safe, no matter how much it might hurt. And pretending is what is fatal, no matter how good it might feel. Fellowship is raw and real and honest and sometimes messy. It involves risk and will only do it where we're made safe, not primarily by each other, but by God, by His love and grace in the mercy of Jesus Christ. Fellowship requires authenticity. Fellowship requires commitment. The text in Acts 2 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Now the apostles' teaching was all about the life and teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we devote ourselves to as we read the scriptures so that they change our minds. And really this entire passage of Acts 2 is about their devotion to fellowship. Because they're involved in all of these activities of learning and eating and praying and sharing together. But here's the key. This way of life, of fellowship, doesn't happen by accident, especially in our culture. Nobody drifts into it. Fellowship requires sharing. And that's the single core of fellowship, the word sharing. Sometimes that word koinonia is used to describe a financial gift early Christians would share with each other. In that world, in ancient Palestine, poverty was worse than we could imagine. Hunger, imprisonment, if you were a debtor and couldn't pay off the debt, starvation, those were everyday occurrences. And then there arose out of nothing a community where people were so filled with love for God and each other, and each other, that rich and poor would come together on equal footing. Other times, people who had possessions would want to help others who did not have so much, that they would go out and sell a piece of property and bring the money back to the fellowship and say, make sure this gets to somebody who really needs it. There had never been a community quite like this before. There was a fellowship that emerged where people who had homes and had food opened them up to people who had no homes and no food. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. No separation based on possessions or status. We talked last weekend at the men's retreat that we all think we know how long we're going to live and how in control we are. And what this kind of thinking leads to in isolation is that we just want to gather more and more and more and be in control of what our life is like and will be. But fellowship is sharing. And I think it was the spirit of sharing that led to joy even in the middle of suffering. Sometimes people read a passage like Acts 2 and think the early church was filled with a band of really nice people and that's why they got along. Actually, the early church had a lot of conflict. They fought over which group of widows got the most amount of food. They fought over what to do about the Gentiles coming in. They fought about what rules to keep. They fought with each other, and they fought with the government. They fought with scammers. This was not Paradise Island. This was the real disciples of ancient Palestine. Speaking the truth is what they did, and it didn't kill them. It grew them. In fellowship, we share our sufferings. Share each other's troubles and problems, Paul wrote, and in this way, obey the laws of Christ. It's a strange thing about shared suffering. Not just suffering, but shared suffering. It has a strange power. If I were to ask about other things that we all had in common. If I asked who here likes the Detroit Lions or who owns a dachshund or who here works in the design and construction industry, there'd be a certain kind of affinity that we'd have together. 
But if I asked who here has survived cancer, if I were to ask who here has lost somebody we love, we'd have a fellowship. We're people who would normally not mix, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female, and that's also fellowship. So last weekend at the retreat, and at the nine other weekend retreats before it, the men of Greenfield went beyond a kind of affinity of simply guys that go to the same church spending some time together. Rather, it turned into a time of fellowship, of sharing resources, sharing suffering, sharing a love of God with a commitment to the future. As John Ortberg writes for all of us, Christian life is not so much what we do in the sermon, it's what we do between the sermons. So thank you, Greenfield, for your fellowship. Thank you, men of Greenfield, for your fellowship, for your commitments and your sharing and your authentic fellowship. May we never lose the spirit of koinonia. Amen.